The following is a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. Grace City exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. For more info, visit gracecitydenver.com. Today's passage is in John 1. We'll be reading verses 6 through 8 and then jumping ahead to 9 to 34. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to think back to a time when you received sudden, shocking news. And it could be of anything could be that it was devastating, horrific news that suddenly came to you by some means, or it could be that it was a, a light message in terms of like, this is more celebratory, this is exciting, I'm happy to receive this news. And I want you to think of instances where that has happened to you, maybe even this week. I'll give you a, a little bit of a silly example and then a more serious one. This, this has happened not once, but probably conservatively speaking, hundreds of times where I receive an email or a direct message, and it's from a Nigerian prince. And he is notifying me that out of all the humans in the world, he has chosen me to receive $100,000, $500,000, a million dollars to share with our ministry for all kinds of good, I'm sure, gospel work in Denver. And the only thing I need to do is give him the routing number and the account number to my checking account and the money will show up, guaranteed. On a more serious note, I still vividly remember a September morning, I was in seminary, sitting in the school library reading, 
And one of my former teachers was coming quickly across the room with just this pale look on his face. And he said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I was like, oh, well, we've been there. Like, like that's crazy. Like, a, like one of those little sightseeing planes. And he said, no, a commercial airliner. Sudden shocking news. I'm a sudden millionaire. Or am I? Something devastating happened in one of our biggest cities. Or did it? And when we hear news, especially news like either one of those examples, impactful news, news that has the potential to really change something about your life or even about our culture, wise people tend to do two things. Number one, they try to establish the credibility of the messenger. Is this someone that can be trusted? Is this someone who is reliable? Is this someone who has a pattern of dishonesty or incredulity? How could I verify what they're telling me? And then we also establish the truth of the message. So in the first example, I can take a couple words like Nigerian prince wants to give me a bunch of money, plug it into Google, and immediately it's like, alert, scam. That's not actually a Nigerian prince, and they don't actually want to give you money. They want to take your money. And it's all over the place. And you know, okay, it's scam. Or in the second example, we didn't have much, many TVs on our campus, but I went to the little snack area where they had CNN playing. And I was like, well, sure enough. I mean, there it is. We're watching the live news of what's happening on the morning of September 11th, 2001. So let me introduce a key word and theme that's going to be seen all throughout the Gospel of John, and it's the idea or it's the concept of a witness or bearing witness. You see it right here in verse 7 where it says, John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And this is a little interesting word study, and, and John loves this word group. The, the noun form martyria is used 14 times in the Gospel of John. The verb form martyreo is used 31 times in the Gospel of John. By the way, if you hear the English word martyr in what I just said, martyria, martyreo, you're correct, because in later years, it would take on this new nuance of a martyr is what? It's someone who's persecuted and then killed because they're bearing witness to a message that they're told you, you have to recant or you have to stop at least disseminating the message, usually a religious message or a message of faith or some kind of belief claim. But a martyr was someone who was killed because they were like, I have to bear witness. Now, backing up to the New Testament era, that persecution murder aspect was not tied into this word. It was just simply someone who believed something enough to bear witness to it. And around this time period in the New Testament, when you see this word witness or the idea of bearing witness, it often paralleled, I would say, the three basic ways that we use the word today, which number one, you would say you're a legal witness in court. You know, you stand there and, I mean, as we've done it for various things, testifying, like you no longer put your hand on a Bible, but you still say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You're bearing witness to something. Now, now you're sworn in, and it's assumed that the testimony that you're about to give is accurate. The second way we use the word witness is simply as an eyewitness. You know, if the accident happens out here in the intersection, and a couple different times I've been standing there and saw it happen, I could say, well, here's what I saw and, and bear that kind of witness. And then the third way we tend to use the word witness is like as a Christian witness, or we, we may use the term witnessing. And that's the idea of someone who believes something like religious truths or the Christian faith or another faith. 
is going out and they're telling people this message that's intended to make converts or disciples. And that's the same three ways that you'll see this word used in the Bible. Sometimes it's more specific to like a legal context. Sometimes it's someone saying, like, John, I'm witnessing to you. I want you to believe what I'm saying. And then other times it's like, I saw that event. I heard what he said, and I'm just telling other people about that. And I want to rewind to week one, which was just two weeks ago, and remind you that John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, is trying to prove something to you. So at the very end of the book, chapter 20, verse 31, I'll remind you, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And to accomplish that goal of, I want you to believe what I believe, and now I'm going to call, as it were, a series of witnesses to testify. What did you see? What did you hear? What experience did you have? Just share it with us. By the way, I think this is an interesting paradox because last week we saw John calling people to believe in Jesus. Now he's going to start introducing this series of witnesses who present evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he can do what he says he can do in your life. And so if you're thinking of that paradox of like, wait, so am I supposed to believe in Jesus or am I supposed to examine the evidence of the witnesses and therefore I know it's either true or false? And the answer, of course, is it's both. It's both. Because putting your trust in Jesus, saying like, Lord, I give you my life, I depend on you, is an act of faith. I'm going to trust you with my life, Jesus, instead of trusting someone or something else, some other voice in our culture that I could trust and depend on. I'm going to put my faith in you. But at the very same time, the, the scripture is full of evidence that it wants you to consider. John, as he writes this years and years later, has compiled this in his mind of like, who are the different witnesses that I could kind of call to the witness stand, as it were, and say, you tell us what you saw. So yes, Christianity is faith, but it is not this blind leap of faith that critics and skeptics of Christianity want you to believe that it is. Because you can simultaneously, with tremendous integrity, trust in Jesus, and look for the evidence. And I love this about our Christian faith, that because it happened in real space-time history with real people who came and walked this earth, I'll say Christianity is either the most falsifiable or the most verifiable religion in the history of the world. Because either these things happened like the resurrection, or they did not happen, but there's testimony there that we can examine. Okay, so with that, with that introduction, let me give you this one big idea that I think John's, now I know it's confusing. So John the writer is trying to share with us about John the Baptist, who's a different person. Here's the big idea. He's saying, on the evidence of eyewitnesses, trust in Jesus and let him do his saving work in you. So those things are not at odds. They're not butting up against each other. Faith and evidence are not adversaries. They're, they're complements to one another. And so we can do what John's calling us to do. We can listen to the first eyewitness that he calls John the Baptist. And I'm going to give you these four points this morning. So the messenger is John the Baptist. He's the first messenger. He's the first witness. John's going to show us his identity, his focus, his purpose, and then our response. Okay, now this, this first one is interesting because John goes to great lengths to show us who John the Baptist is and who he isn't. And he almost spends more time showing us who he isn't 
than who he is, but I want to look with you at both. So back to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So if you're taking notes, your first thing here is who John wasn't. John was not the light. And he's gone to great lengths already. We looked at this in week one where John's like, I I met this man and he is light and he is life. Meaning these things are inherently the essence of who he is and he can give life to you and he can give light into your darkness. And John the Baptist is saying, I know about the light and I'm going to tell you about the light, but I'm not the light. Now jump ahead to verse 19, where I actually think, I think this is a comical exchange between John the Baptist and the religious leaders of the day. Because the religious leaders, they're in Jerusalem, they're in their holy huddle, you know, being self-righteous and all that, as they did. And they're hearing about this guy, this very, by the way, eccentric man. If you read the other synoptic gospels, it's like he clothed himself in camel's hair, which is extraordinarily scratchy, and he ate bugs and honey and just a weird guy and, 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 and very confrontational, by the way. If you read about John's ministry and you see the quotes of his words, he was not just like, how can we all just get along or go along to get along? What's the smoothest way to communicate this to you? He's like, you brood of vipers. And he's off and running. So they're like sitting back in Jerusalem, hearing about this guy, some of them seeing this guy, and they're like, Why is his ministry growing? And all the common people are going out and listening to him and repenting of their sins and being baptized in the muddy Jordan River. And frankly, I think they're envious and anxious. I think they are frustrated that this crazy guy out in the wilderness has this massive following and they're going after him instead of them. So they send this entourage out to him and they say, hey, who are you? We must know. And this conversation goes on. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so that's your next point. John says, I am not the Christ. And this is just a good place to remind you, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ, the word Christos in Greek, is a word that means the anointed one. Um, The parallel in Hebrew is Meshiach or Messiah. And all of Israel is looking for this anointed king who would come and sit on David's throne and would restore the kingdom to Israel and bring the kingdom of God down. And there would be freedom and liberty and, and, and forgiveness for all. And, and so they're like, is that you? And he says, that's not me. I know about the Messiah, but I am not the Messiah. So then verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. So two more. He's not Elijah. Who's Elijah? Elijah is an Old Testament prophet from the 9th century BC during the reign of Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel. And if you ever wonder where this weird expression, the Jezebel spirit, comes from, it comes from the original, like OG Jezebel, who was a horrible person and killed her enemies who were innocent people just simply to seize their land, okay? So he's that prophet. He's the prophet who predicted the years and years of drought. He's the prophet who raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. He's the prophet who had that major square off with the prophets of Baal on the mountain, if you remember that, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices. And it's like, what are you doing talking about Elijah? What do you mean, am I Elijah from the ninth century BC? Well, a couple interesting things. Do you know the closing words of the Old Testament? So the last two verses of Malachi, 
400 some odd years before this, say this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Wait, I'll send you Elijah the prophet. Like, how is that even possible? Well, if you know the story, long story short, at the end of Elijah's ministry, as he's literally taking his prophetic mantle off of himself and placing it on his successor, Elisha. I know it's confusing, but Elijah was first. Elisha followed after him. So they go out into this remote place. He gives this mantle of prophecy to him. He gives him a double spirit of prophecy. And the Bible says, then a a chariot and horses of fire came down from heaven and took Elijah alive up in a whirlwind. So Elijah didn't die. And so there was this long-standing rabbinic tradition of we'll know that Yahweh is returning when Elijah shows back up. Maybe he comes in a whirlwind, but he's going to come in this apocalyptic way and he's going to announce the coming of our Messiah King. And so they say, are you him? And is that this incredible moment that we've talked about? Like, maybe it'll happen this way. And he says, sorry, I'm not, I'm not Elijah. So then what's next? The prophet, who's this? Who's the prophet that he also is not? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy 18, at the end of Moses' ministry, you know, the Moses that received the Ten Commandments, that wrote the first five books of the Bible, that led Israel out of bondage in Egypt, that Moses, so he's coming to the end of his ministry and he tells the people of Israel, there is coming another prophet after me someday that you need to listen to. And I'll share these words with you. So Moses says, And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. So the religious leaders are like, Are you that prophet? Like, are we supposed to be listening to you? We're frustrated with you, but we need to know if you're him, And there's punishment and judgment for not listening to you. Tell us, are you him? And he says, I'm not him either. I love this. So 22, 23, it just gets gets better. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So they're like, "Just, just tell us something to take back to the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And he said, this is his self identification. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that's, that's four things that John wasn't. He's not the light. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. Who is he? He says, I'm the one Isaiah told you would come crying out in the wilderness. So let's, let's go there. And you can turn there if you want, or I'll read these verses He's referencing Isaiah 40, which was written 700 years earlier. And Isaiah the prophet says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
And I want to just encapsulate a couple things there from what I just read. Notice the voice is not the Lord. And by the way, the Lord in, in Isaiah 40 is, is all caps. And what that means is he's using the covenant name Yahweh. He's saying Yahweh is coming. But this voice is not Yahweh. This voice is announcing the coming of Yahweh. Notice the voice announces in a place of barrenness and hardship, in the desert, that represents great difficulty and struggle. And he says, here in this place of difficulty and struggle and hardship and pain and brokenness, a big change is coming. And then finally, I'd have you note that this voice sees his role as a witness to and a preparation for the coming of not Jesus per se, but God himself. And I don't mean that to separate Jesus from God, but if you only read Isaiah 40, you would say, okay, who's coming when this voice starts crying out in the wilderness? You would say, Yahweh is coming. The covenant God of Israel is coming somehow, some way. Now that's incredible because the one that comes is Jesus, the son of God. But if you were to apply this prophecy to John the Baptist now, who's he saying he is? He's saying I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the light. You know what I am? I'm the forerunner. I'm just the one who runs ahead and says, hey, announcement, the king is coming. Get ready, make the way ready, make it smooth, make it plain, make it easy because the king is coming. And that makes sense then of this next simple point. So that, that, that was the identity of the messenger. Now, what was the focus of the messenger? What was John the Baptist centered on and focused on? If you look at verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we talked about this last week, but behold is like, look. It it is this excited interjection of give your full and immediate attention to something. This is important. By the way, as I mentioned a little bit, John the Baptist already had a very large following. He, he was very popular, not with the upper crust people, but with the common people of Israel. He was a pretty popular guy. Note that his focus is not on himself. He's not like, man, this feels pretty good. I started this ministry as the forerunner, but it feels pretty good to be preaching to all these people. So now I can say kind of whatever I want because I'm preaching to all these people. And I'll just interject my own stuff. He's not focused on growth. He's not focused on numbers. He's not focused on popularity. John's sole focus was the person and work of Jesus. And he's like, I know I'm this unique figure that Isaiah, and Isaiah's a big name prophet. He has like the second longest book in the Old Testament. You got Psalms, 150 of them, but 60 some chapters of Isaiah. He's a big deal. He's like, Isaiah said, I would come. Not, not someone like me, not a group of me, me. But he didn't care about that. He's like, my focus is on the person, the Lamb of God, and the work of Jesus. He comes to take away the sins of the world. Let me, let me show you that, this, this obsession that he has, okay? Just, just a couple ways. Verse 27, if I were to paraphrase this, he says, there's someone coming after me that I'm not even worthy to untie the strap on his sandal. Which, by the way, in that context was the lowest slave. The lowest slave of the household, the master comes home, he has to untie your shoes for you and wash your feet. And he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. 
And if that sounds arrogant, it's the exact opposite. You know, we have the expression today, like, that's beneath me. It's like picking up trash, picking up after the dog in the yard, cleaning toilets. That's beneath me. And you can think of stuff that you, you may not say that, but you definitely feel that. You're like, ooh, someone else should do that. That's kind of beneath me. And notice John the Baptist is not saying serving Jesus in the most menial way is beneath me. He's actually saying the exact opposite. He says serving Jesus in the most menial way is what? He says it's above me. It's above me. I am not worthy to even be the one to touch his feet and untie his shoes. And I don't think this is just like self-deprecating, like, ah, I'm just pawn scum. It's just me. He's just like, I understand the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of this Jesus who is coming. God's told me who he is, and I'm not worthy to have anything to do with his story. And yet here I am by God's grace. Look at him. Don't look at me. Is the point of 27. Then another example of this is verse 30. Again, to paraphrase, he's like, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he was in fact before me. And you're like, wait, wait, John, you're six months older or whatever. Like you, you were before him. And he's like, no, because the one who's coming after me, the one I'm introducing is the eternal preexistent God. He was before me. Listen to him. It's about his message and person, not me. John's whole focus is Jesus. So then what is his purpose? I'll give you you three ways, these kind of overlap in meaning. But but number one, from verses seven and eight, his purpose, John the Baptist's purpose, was to testify about the light so that all might believe in him. Not in himself, not in his own message, like, John, we believe in you. He's like, I I am only here for one purpose, that is to shine the spotlight on Jesus. And his light is coming and greatly eclipsing mine. Trust him, believe in him. But if you were to go to John and say, John, John, what is the purpose of your life? As, As just a common Jew, you know, you probably want a good education, get married to a good woman, raise some good kids, make decent money so you can have a good semi-retirement, though people back then didn't really retire in the way that we do today. But, but what is the purpose of your life? And he would say, the purpose of my life is to shine the light on him so that people believe in him. That's, that's all I care about. I want more people to put their faith in Jesus because they know him and they trust him. A second way to say John's purpose from verse 23 is he's saying, I'm just coming to make straight the way of the Lord. I'm coming before him. I want to make it straight. And I have to come back to this vivid word picture from Isaiah because living in Colorado, most of you know this better than most people, okay? How many of you have ever been caught in ski traffic or holiday traffic, okay? It's pretty much all of you if you've lived in Colorado for more than like 10 seconds and you headed west. Where does the traffic always bog down? The bottom of Floyd Hill. Why? Because it's the steepest, it's the narrowest, and it has the sharpest curves. So you can say, my objective, I just want to go ride today. I just want to go ski today. I just want to go hang with my friends or my family in the mountains today. But, but you're not going to get to do that because there is no straight way to get there through those canyons along Clear Creek. Um, 
So what's CDOT doing about that? Did you know they're up there right now? And if you've driven it recently, you've seen this. Like they're literally blasting away millions of tons of mountain. Why? To try to fill in the valleys a little bit and try to lower the mountains a little bit and try to straighten out that curve and widen the road. So by the way, next time you're sitting in ski traffic behind Floyd Hill, just be like, thank you so much, Jesus, that John the Baptist's purpose was to make this road wider and straighter and more level. But his goal was, was what? He, he sees, like, there are obstacles in people's lives to getting to Jesus. There, there are roadblocks. There are sharp curves, and people are making wreck of their lives. And he's like, I- I've come, and, and I want people after me because it's an imperative. It's not just this is what I'm doing, but it's this is what I'm doing, and I'm calling everyone who follows Jesus, come do this with me. Let's fill in those valleys and let's pull down those mountains and let's straighten out those curves and let's make the rough places plain so more people can see Jesus and get to Jesus and receive his gifts. Which is this last part of his purpose. John just, verse 29, 32, 33, he just came to tell people what Jesus came to do. He's like, I know he hasn't done this yet, but let me tell you what he's about to do for you and why you should be following him instead of me, why you should be listening to him because I'm gonna be quiet here in a minute and he's gonna start talking. Follow him. Why? Well, first of all, he's gonna say, what what did Jesus come to do? He came to take away our sin. Verse 29, again, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by the way, again, notice how he's expounding his person and his work. Who is he? Have you heard this term, Agnus Dei? You ever wonder what it means? It means Lamb of God. In Latin, over and over again, songs and poems, Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. And it's a reference to a very common image from the Old Testament going all the way back to Genesis 4, I guess, of this sacrificial lamb. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Cain comes, I don't know, this was some cheap turnips and carrots, some stuff from the ground, didn't really cost me anything. Abel comes, this is my best lamb to sacrifice. And God says, what a worthy and costly sacrifice. I accept that offering. Or you jump to Genesis 22 where Abraham and his son Isaac are going up to this mountain and Isaac looks around and says, "Uh, Father, so we have wood and we have fire but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And what does Abraham respond? He says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide somehow. It's not going to be you on that altar, son. Ultimately, God will provide a substitute. And then you jump to like the powerful imagery of Exodus 12. And I think this is a lot of what, Mo, uh, a lot of what John, the writer here, is pointing to. Because we looked at all the Exodus imagery last week. But on that night of Passover, the, the last of the plagues that, that let Pharaoh just say, fine, get out, go, was that Passover night, the very first Passover, where the Israelites took the innocent lamb and blessed that as a family and took the blood of the lamb and applied it to the doorposts and lentils. And as the death angel is coming through, it's saying, instead of your firstborn being required, I see the blood of the lamb 
and you are delivered. You go on to a familiar image of Isaiah 53, and we quoted some of those words this morning. The lamb led to the slaughter. But the incredible thing about Isaiah 53 is how much substitutionary imagery is there. Like he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, right? Why why did he die? And Isaiah says, it's because he's going to heal us by his stripes that he takes, the sacrificial lamb. And you put all these Old Testament examples together and it's like, what did the lamb do? It's just all one way of saying, the lamb dies in the place of the person who sinned. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Putting your hand on the head of that lamb, symbolically transferring the guilt of your sin to that animal and saying, now that, that animal is punished, as it were. That animal takes the wrath of my guilt. And so that God doesn't continue to look at my sin, but God can treat me with favor because something has substituted itself for me. And so John the Baptist is pointing out, this lamb of God is gonna do something similar for you. But notice something very important. John the Baptist says, Jesus will not only take the punishment, he'll take away your sin. And this is incredible because when you flip ahead to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, over and over again, I put this in your notes for reading as a gospel community group because it's fascinating. Hebrews 10 says, it is impossible for the blood of an animal to take away your sins. He says, it's impossible. It can't happen. Jesus had to come as the final sacrifice and say, as God, I die for you to take away your sins. So I've used this illustration before. A couple of you probably have heard it. So what was with the killing of all the animals in the Old Testament? I want you to think of it like your uh, credit card. So when you, when you go to a store and you use, not a debit card, it's important that we're thinking about a credit card, okay? When you go and pay for something with your credit card, you're not actually paying for it. You know that? You're not. Discover or Visa or someone else is paying for it. But it's with your promise that when you send me that bill at the end of the month and it has that ledger of all those expenses, that I'll write a check or I'll transfer money somehow to cover what happened earlier. It's a way of thinking of all these Old Testament sacrifices. That lamb died. That ram died. Those pigeons died. Is it taking away sin? No. The Bible uses the word atone, which means to cover. It's covering it. But if someone's not coming ultimately in time to pay off what was theoretically covered back here, it's no good. And the whole system's going to fall apart, and you're going to realize nobody's forgiven anything. But it's only because at the end of the day, Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes and takes away the sin of the world because he's going to go to the cross and just say, look at all those debts. Look at everything on the ledger. You, you swiped your credit card in the Old Testament millions of times. And I come and say, paid in full. That's how anybody gets forgiveness. And John says, he hasn't done it yet, but you need to know that's why he's come and that's why you should follow him. And then the final thing here, he says, he's not only come to take away the sins of the world, he came to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And not a Holy Spirit who just comes upon you for a task and then leaves again, but a Holy Spirit who comes and abides and remains with you forever present upon your life Verses 32 through 34, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him, Jesus. This is when he's baptizing him. 
John baptizes Jesus, the Spirit comes. He says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said this to me. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son, or a better translation would be, this is the chosen of God. There's a lot going on here. I want you to focus on this. John was baptizing people with water, symbolized the washing away of their sin, the cleansing from sin. He says, but, but there's someone coming, and there he is, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And just as I saw the Spirit come upon him and remain on him, abide. It's the same word as abide. When we're called to abide in Christ, same word, Abide. So Jesus emptied himself, takes on flesh, comes, the spirit comes, empowers this life that Jesus is about to live, these miracles that he's about to do, these sermons that he's about to preach, the conviction that he's about to bring on people's lives. And John is kind of saying, where can you get power and wisdom like that to to do the things that Jesus did? Not from your own willpower, not from just having a list of rules like I should do all that stuff. But he says, he's coming and he's going to give you the spirit and the spirit's going to stay. And the spirit's going to be power and grace and love. And, And how do you bear his fruit in your life? It's not by more effort, although God's not opposed to effort. But ultimately it's going to be because you abide and remain in him and he's going to produce this work in you. So he's, he's coming, and he's literally going to give you the presence of God forever. So in closing, how do we respond to this messenger? And just real quickly, I would say, number one, weigh the evidence of his testimony. That's what he's inviting you to do. Is this guy a lunatic? Is he trustworthy? Did he himself live and die for what he believed in? By the way, he did. He was beheaded for what he believed you're like, okay, so weigh the evidence of his testimony. Then secondly, receive the person and work of Jesus personally, which is different than sitting in a room surrounded by people who receive the person and work of Jesus. It's saying, okay, Jesus, if you've come to take away sin, then I trust you to take away my sin. If you've come to give the gift of the Spirit to empower me for godly living and for sharing, then would you put that power on my life? And enable me to respond to it. And then finally, would you join with him in bearing witness? When John's saying, I'm a, I'm a witness, but he's going to get to the end of these gospels, and what does Jesus say? You now are my witnesses. You're all my witnesses. And again, a witness is not, it's not up to you to like get people into the kingdom. It's not up to you to change someone's heart. We can't do that. All we can do is say, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what I therefore believe. And I want you to believe it too. Because it will bring you joy and peace and love and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and adoption and inheritance and all these things that God has promised. But but we've got to join in bearing witness. And just in closing with that metaphor again, if you're going through life and you see an obstacle in a friend's life, a neighbor's life, a coworker's life, and you're like, you're not seeing God. You're you're misrepresenting all of Christianity by the way you think. And, And you start praying, like, God, how can I help 
remove that obstacle to make a highway. These, these things that people feel like they're climbing over to get to God, how can I bring that down some? How can I backfill some so that by my testimony and by the testimony of the church, which is imperfect, is broken, we make mistakes, but, but we're clearing a path to Jesus so that people see his glory and they forget, as the old hymn says, they forget the channel seeing only him. You just listened to a recording of a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope you can join us in person soon. Thanks for listening. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.